This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to Wealthion. I'm your host, Andrew Brill. The market continues to take us on a bumpy ride. What led us to make the financial decisions we've made? Did you get in at the right time or get out at the wrong time? We'll try and answer those questions and more coming up right now. Our mission here at Wealthion is to help all of us keep and grow our money. Wealthion is not just a channel. It's a conversation with you, our community. So please keep the feedback coming. If there's anything you would like us to talk about or someone you'd like to hear from, let us know. And if you could like and subscribe to the channel, we'd really appreciate it. Now let's dive into the discussion. I'd like to welcome behavioral economist Dan Ariely to the show. Dan has been here before and has a fascinating story about how and why he became interested in behavioral economics. He's also an author of several best-selling books, a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University, known for his groundbreaking research on human irrationality, decision-making, and also the founder of the Center for Advanced Hindsight, which is a Duke University research lab. Dan, thanks so much for joining me. Lovely to be here. So I just want to start by asking advanced hindsight. You know, when I grew up, my dad always had this saying, hindsight's always 2020. So you can look on everything back with a, a clear picture and know what's going on. What's advanced hindsight? So, so we, we called it the center advanced hindsight, uh, slightly in jest, of course. Um, but, but the other thing is that it's a reminder for ourselves against the protection of, of exactly what you, what you said. That we find something and we said, oh, we knew that all along. Or something happened and we, we say we, we knew it all along. And, you know, this, this hindsight is not just um, about the past. It's really something that is holding us back from learning uh, new things. Imagine I ask you, um, Andrew, um, if I asked you in 2000, what would be the value of Tesla in 2024? <laughs> what would you have said? You know, it's very hard <laughs> to right. go back right. and ignore the amazing success of Tesla in the stock market in these years. So, so these, these things about hindsight are really filling us and making it actually quite difficult to learn uh, because we convince ourselves that we knew things all along. So explain to me, you know, times change, situations changes, and, and look, our country, the stock market, all our economy, all evolving. Yet we look back and we say, okay, this is how things were. This is how the Fed handled it. This is how you know, we, we control interest rates to control the economy, all this stuff. But yet maybe we should be looking forward at new stuff, but we're sort of stuck in the past saying, okay, this is the way we did it. It worked. It didn't work. So we're going to try doing these things. How do you explain, you know, trying to look forward while not looking too far back in the past? One of the main things that we want as people is to feel that we're predicting the world. Um, my, my most recent book is actually about conspiracy theories. It's called Misbeliefs. And, and it, it started 
in COVID with, with lots of things around there. Um, but for example, I, I described fishermen in that book. And I say, look, um, let's think about two types of fishermen. Fishermen that fish in the deep ocean and fishermen that fish in lakes. Uh, which one of them has a more predictable environment? Obviously, the lake. Tomorrow will be like today and so on, that things move very slowly. The ocean changes dramatically. And then uh, I ask you to think about which type of fisherman is more likely to have superstitions. Of course, the ones in the ocean. Why? Because they need a story to try and feel that they're in control. Now, that story doesn't change control, but it creates a feeling of control. And, and the stock market, especially now, I think it's like fishing in the deep ocean. Very unpredictable. Things are moving very much. And a lot of these stories are not that correct, but it's stories that we're looking for as a way to explain to ourselves what is going on. Now, would we be better off financially if we could abandon those stories and actually create a new story? Maybe. I think so. Highly likely. But would we lose some of our psychological comfort? Yes, as well. So these, these stories are fulfilling two things. They're trying to help us predict, but they're trying to fill us, give us a feeling of control as well. And that's helpful psychologically, but not financially. So how do you explain the uncertainty today, I, I, you know, there's, and I guess it's different socioeconomic groups that are I involved in that we worry about, okay, the Fed's going to do this, the Fed's going to do that when, you know, we're worried about putting food on the table or something that we actually want when we need the food to survive. But, well, you know, I wanted that big screen TV. I'm not sure I can afford it. So behaviorally, the the economic situation we're in with spending is a little irrational. So how is that explained? So, um, you know, there's one way to be rational and there are many ways to be irrational. And uh, the reality is that when it comes to dealing with money um, or actually anything in modern society, uh, our brain is like a set of tools that have been designed for a very different environment. Like we have been evolutionarily designed to deal with an environment, with tigers and jungles and all kinds of other things. And fast forward to today, uh, we have a very different environment, but we have the same old tools. And maybe those tools were good fit for our history, but they're not good fit for now. But this is all we have. So we're trying to deal with these um, tools that are not fit for the job, but, but that's, that's what we have. Another question is, what kind of mistakes do we do it? How does it change across, across people? So one a very interesting finding is something that is called scarcity mindset. What's a scarcity mindset? Uh, imagine somebody who is preoccupied with something. You can think somebody who has an ailing parent or somebody who lost their job, or you can imagine somebody in chronic poverty. Um, if you think about people in chronic poverty, they are preoccupied all the time with, will I be able to pay this bill? And will I be able to buy dinner? And where is, are they going to cancel my <laughs> health insurance and so on? And 
And what the results show is that when people are preoccupied with those thoughts, their mental capacity available for other things is reduced and reduced by quite a lot. So are those people have less IQ? No, but do they behave as if they have less IQ? Yes, because part of their mind is dealing with something else. And when we have financial uncertainty, we're actually um, functioning at a lower, lower performance level. The other thing to understand is that there are two types of stress in general. There's predictable stress and there's unpredictable stress. So predictable stress could be, gee, I'm so busy, I have lots to do, I'm not sure that I'll finish uh, my to-do list uh, today, right? Like it's stress, but it's not stress, I don't understand the world, it's stress, I don't know how I'll have time to do all of those things. That's very different from the stress of the fishermen in the deep sea that say, I don't understand where these things are coming from. I don't understand what is happening. And, and the reality is that we have a lot of stress of the second type these days. Of course, we had lots of it during COVID. What is this virus? Where did it come from? Lab, not lab. Why did they shut the whole world? Are vaccines working, not working? Um, what is going on here? Um, we, we haven't recovered fully from the, the stress of COVID. And, and now we have uh, lots of new stress. So, for example, when I talk to students on campus, they ask me, they say, with these new AI technologies, are we going to have jobs? Uh, what kind of jobs, by the time we, we graduate, will not be there? Like, think about how comforting it is to know that you have a career path and if you want it, it will be there for you for 30 years. And think about how stressful it is to basically say, I'm studying X right now. I don't know if by the time I graduate and I finish all of this effort, if X will be at all needed or maybe a different version. And then, of course, we have other things that create stress. You know, what's happening with Russia? What's happening with Iran? What's happening with the Houthis in, in Yemen? Um, what, what's happening with with polarization, the political polarization, uh, what's happening to truth, who can we uh, trust? Right. So, so we're, we're kind of, we're stressed. Like, and if you ask the question of whether this is a good environment to people to make good financial decisions, the answer is no. Now, there's one other curious thing. If, if we have stress, what is our natural inoculation for stress? And the natural inoculation for stress is resilience. You know, you, you ask yourself, how much stress can I take and not lose thinking ability and not lose control? <clears throat> it really is a question of how much resilience do we have? And right now, we are not only experiencing lots of stress, we're also experiencing all-time low in terms of resilience. Why? Um, our social networks have changed. But if you think about what is resilience is to what extent can you count on people around you to pick you up if they needed to? If your house got burned down, would somebody give you a bed? If you lost your job, would somebody <coughs> help you out? If, if you had an ailing parent, would somebody 
take over and, and, and help out. We have replaced real friendships with social media. Uh, we, have, we are spending less and less time uh, with our social circles. We're spending more time in the nuclear family, but less time with our broader social circle. And on top of that, there's interesting research showing that as income inequality increases, resilience goes down. Why? Because if you live in a particular neighborhood and in financial inequality is increasing, you're less likely to ask for help. So with a high time of stress, low resilience, uh, very bad conditions for good financial decisions. So you'd recommend people just hold on, just, you know what, let, let the dust settle, take a step back, take a deep breath, and, you know, then maybe make your financial decisions. You know, time, time is valuable and compound interest is important. So I don't necessarily think that we should wait until and wait for the dust to, to, to settle. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a point where we should doubt our own intuitive decisions. And we should... We should ask for help. You know, one of the fascinating things about financial decisions is that people are not comfortable talking to their friends about financial decisions, uh, right? People don't like to say, how much do you make? Right. Uh, what's, your, what's, what's your debt? <laughs> um, you know, how are you managing? What's your, what's your insurance? Um, but, but the reality is that there's this huge asymmetry of information. Um, you know, we, we ask people for recommendations for restaurants and books. Why don't we ask for recommendations for um, insurance and saving plans? Um, I, I think the answer is not to do nothing and wait until we feel better. I think the answer is to basically reach out, get over our discomfort and asking people for advice. You talked about scarcity mindset, and is is my, my question is is that scalable? My my son did some research in Uganda and was fascinated about how much they didn't have, but how happy they were. And you come here and you find you obviously run the scale of where there are people who don't have a lot. When we say don't, they have a roof over their head, they have food on the table, but they don't have the luxuries that a lot of us would say, oh, those are luxuries. But then yeah. there's people who are, who have all these luxuries and have money, but yet they are as stressed as anybody. So is that scarcity mindset thinking like, oh my God, I have all this money, but you know, it's in the market, I might lose it all. Yeah. So, so, so first of all, the, the mind works to a very large degree on an algorithm of relativity. <laughs> uh, you remember when you were young, uh, your mother would pour you oranges and she would pour your brother and sister a tiny bit less or more. <laughs> and, you know, you didn't care about your absolute amount of oranges. You cared about, you know, do I get more or less than, than my share? Why is the cubicle next to me a little bit bigger and smaller? The, the reality is that we run a relative algorithm in our mind. Relative to what? Relative to what we had yesterday, relative to the people around us and so on. And that algorithm also uh, creates counterfactual thinking. What else could I have? And counterfactual thinking has a real impact on quality of life. So if you live next to somebody who is 
much wealthier, um, you're going to be actually more miserable, <laughs> right? You're going to be actually more miserable because the thought of looking at them and, and seeing what they have is going to penetrate your joy with what you have. So, you know, part of the Ten Commandments is, is not, to, not to be envious. Right. Impossible. <laughs> Impossible <laughs> to do. So we, we run on these algorithms of relativity, and those re that relativity is real. So, you know, when, when you look at what we see on social media, um, if you think about the relatively high rates of depression, um, I'm sure that seeing like nobody, nobody on social media puts pictures of them being depressed. Uh, in, I have in that their, discussion all the time. <laughs> yeah, with with, an, with a with a crummy car. People put pictures of themselves happy, mostly, you know, but but almost always. And, and what we do is we get a, an unrealistic sense of what people can, can achieve, right? And um, it's not healthy. And you could say, oh, it's not real. It's just relativity. No. The way we compute our happiness is connected to relative happiness. And it's, it's the real algorithm. It's not just a fake. It's the real, it's the real algorithm. So... You know, can people be objectively better off in some external sense, but their brain is actually experiencing worse themselves as being worse off? Absolutely. How do we get to that point where, you know, it's material goods, it's stuff like that? There's, there are people that live perfectly happy without these material goods, but how did we get there? Is that societal? Is that, look, you know what? I need to buy this stock. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to go on vacation to an extravagant, extravagant yeah. place. How did we get to that point? So, so, so first of all, let's, let's also remember that, that there's some good things about that, right? Uh, yes, you know, we're pursuing all kinds of things that might not be ideal, but the world is incredibly complex and incredibly interesting. And, and, and part of it are, are things that are, that are good. So, so you know, we don't, we don't say, oh, you know, forget all of this, all of this stuff. But we have a, we have a phrase in, in behavioral economics called, you are what you measure. And um, think about something like frequent flyer miles. Uh, the, the goal of life is certainly not to maximize your frequent flyer miles. Uh, the goal is to maximize some happiness in some general abstract way. But guess what? Happiness is hard to measure. Uh, frequent flyer miles are easy to measure. <laughs> right. So, so you know, so often we what we do is we measure what's easy rather than what's important. Or think about relationship between spouses one spouse is funnier uh, one spouse is kinder uh, one spouse is more generous uh, one spouse makes more money uh, from all of those things uh, which one which attribute is the easily quantifiable attribute the money the make more money the make more money has decimals right <laughs> think about the level of precision so, so when we look at the power relationship in a couple, um, it ends up being way too influenced by income 
then by who is more generous or kinder or, or something else. Easy to measure, therefore it becomes something. So material goods, if you, you, your question was, how did we get there? So, so the reality is that we, we are relative creatures, as we, as we said. So think about the tail of the peacock. Um, the tail of the peacock, it's, it's called the handicap principle. And the tail of the peacock is very dysfunctional. Why would a peacock want a long, heavy tail? Um, it's easy to be caught by a wolf. <clears throat> In fact, if you take young peacocks and you stitch longer tails to them, uh, they get eaten quickly. Because a tail is really making things harder for them. But at the same time, uh, the tail is communicating to the females. Look how strong I am. Look, I can manage with this long tail. Just think about how strong I am. So now, now do the peacocks care about their absolute length of the tail? No, they just care about the relative length. I want to have my tail slightly longer than your tail. That's it. That's all I care about. But of course, we all want that, and there's a competition for this, for this thing. The same thing with relativity and happiness and communicating things to others. These are just very natural instincts that are built into us. So we want a phone that is just as good as yours or maybe slightly better, and we want a car that is just as good or maybe slightly better, we want to communicate it to ourselves. We want to communicate it to, to other people. And, and that's how the world <laughs> continues. So I once saw a quote saying that he who dies with the most money wins. Uh, but, you know, you can't take it with you, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, I, I want to get back to the market a little bit and the interest rates. And, you know, the, the Fed, is there a behavioral component to their decision making we know that they they look at all the data they look at all the charts all the graphs and all the the indicators but is there something saying look you know what the, the fed's trying to get our inflation down to two percent now i've just read and listened to the thinking that maybe they're thinking you know maybe it could be two and a half percent and what's the behavioral component of the their thinking do you think so, so first of all, I don't want to predict their particular way of right. thinking. But, you know, there is things like consumer confidence that is actually a very important input. Because when we think about rates, uh, rates are basically supposed to drive behavior, right? Uh, they expect changes in behavior to rate changes. And if they didn't think so, they wouldn't change the rates, right? So it's a... It's, it's a way to try and drive, drive behavior. But of course, people don't react directly to the rates. Um, it's an indirect uh, reaction. So, for example, um, in a case of a war, um, people have a very different attitude to life. Um, you know... Um, Depends on the stage of the war, but at some point people are depressed 
and they just don't want to buy anything because they're so unhappy and, and miserable. And then there is always something in a in time of war where people are feeling a, a sense of being alive. And I don't know if there'll be tomorrow, and let's spend now. <clears throat> if you think about the, the, the cycle of a war, it usually starts with the depressed thoughts. And then at some point, people say, I'm alive. Um, life is precious. Let me not worry too much about the future. Now, I'm giving this as an extreme example uh, because it's the same physical thing. There's a war, but the psychological reaction to it is very different. And therefore, the interest rate reaction should be, should be very different. So, you know, it's a, it's a very coarse measure, uh, inflation. But if you think about inflation, uh, interest rate, influencing behavior, it goes through consumer confidence and what we think people would do. Would they buy more? Would they buy less? What are we trying to get? So I think, um, I don't think there's a specific model, a behavioral model, but I think it's somewhere in the mind of the people of taking also consumer confidence into account. So consumer confidence is something, obviously, that the Fed looks at and says, OK, you know, people are spending money. We're in good shape. Yeah. But the Fed is saying, eh, no, 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 we're not in such good shape. But yet the consumer numbers continue to come in very yeah, pretty good. They, they weren't spectacular this last go around, but they were still pretty good. Yeah. What is the what drives that confidence where people now are saying, you know what, I, I'm not going to listen to the Fed and say, you know what, I need to cut back. But I'm going to keep spending. The spending has come down a little bit, but yeah. people are still spending like they hadn't been in when we were in other recessions. Yeah. So, so I think that habits take a very long time to, to cut down. Uh, that's one. And, and the second is that I, I feel that we're still under the COVID influence. I think our psychology right now is the psychology of survivors. You know, it ended up being a much smaller tragedy than we feared uh, from a health perspective. Um, but, but there's a sense of we've just gotten over some really tough things. And by the way, at my age, you know, it was two years of, you know, 56 years. Um, but, but I look at my kids, uh, for them, it was two years of a much shorter life. The, the impact that it had is, is, uh, very significantly different. And, and as a consequence, it, it shaped them to a very large, to a very large degree. So I think we're, we're kind of in this survivorship mode that says, let's celebrate. We don't know when the next big tragedy would would come from and i think the combination of that and and habits are slow to change is is getting our spending to be at a higher level than you would otherwise predict i feel you we're the same age and i have kids as well who are and when, when you talked about the decimal point of, of money and the, the precisity and and measurability you well you can measure the the two years out of the 56 or the the two years out of the 18 years in the terms of my daughter so it's a it's a much longer you know time frame and a much larger chunk of her entire life but 
you, you talked about, or, or I'd like to get into, you know, the, the, the theory or the, the, the behavior of buying stocks. Now, is there, do you think, some sort of triumph? When you buy a stock or when someone goes and buys a stock, someone has to sell that stock. They're like, oh, you know, they sold it to me. So I'm feeling good about my decision. So is, is there some, when, when someone decides to buy a stock, or get into AI stocks, so to speak. What is the the thinking behind it? And, or is there a thinking behind, oh, you know what? I just won. I got what I wanted. I bought the stock that I wanted and I got it at the price that I wanted. Yeah. So I don't think that buying stocks have the same shopping satisfaction as buying a hat or shoes or something like that. You know, there's a term retail therapy. <laughs> And, and I'm aware of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. and, and retail therapy is real because, you know, imagine that I feel that I have little control over my life. Um, I, somebody else controls my job and somebody else control my taxes and I got an illness and, you know, my life is not really under my control. <clears throat> and all of a sudden I can show somebody this plastic card and something changes in the world. This hat that used to be there is now mine. This jacket that used to be there is like, there's something about um, changing the state of the world with shopping. And it's a, it's a real feeling of being in control and changing something, something real in the world. So, so of course, there's other things, right? We hopefully enjoy what we bought. We get to anticipate, remember, and, and experience it and so on. But... <clears throat> But there's a very important component of, of feeling in control. I don't think that stocks have the same thing. Because, because when we buy stock, we buy it for the value appreciation. We don't buy it for the, for the thing uh, itself. It's not like, uh, like a hat. So I don't think that it has um, the retail therapy kind of notion. Uh, but I do think that it is a test for intellectual quality. Um, you know, a little bit like a game. Like, you know, people play games and there are points. And to some degree, if I buy a stock and it goes up, I feel I've outsmarted some people. It's the game of life and I've done, uh, I've done well. And um, by the way, we, we always tell people, look at your portfolio, don't look at a single stock. But it's very hard because at the end of the day, we want to know how many decisions did we get correctly and how many decisions that we didn't. Talk to me about FOMO. I mean, you know, there's this whole AI craze. And, you know, my, my son just bought some AI stock and, you know, he, he's been thinking about it. And what drives us? There's an irrationality right now going on in the market where we just saw it with AI stocks and the the valuations that just came out. And these stocks, because people are looking at the future, they're saying, oh, this is the best I have to get in. And then there's people like, oh, oh my God, I need to get in now because I need yeah. to be part of this. We, yeah. we discussed a little bit about, you know, the scarcity mindset, but how, where does that come from? We're like, oh my God, you know what? I, I need to get in on this craze. So, so look, um, if you look at the increase in the stock market, um, a lot of them come from a very small number of companies. 
And, and a part of it is herd behavior. And herd behavior is very humanly, it's very, very much a, a human trait. Uh, imagine you walk down the street and you see two restaurants. Uh, one has no line of people. One has a long line of people. Uh, what do you assume? You assume that that restaurant must be fantastic. Now, <laughs> it doesn't have to be that good. Like you can say, the first person came to the street. There were two empty restaurants. He chose it randomly. The next person came. They said, oh, there's one person here, zero here. Let's stand here. The third person came, two here and zero here. And, and soon enough, <clears throat> with no information, there was one long line in front of one of them and zero in another. This is basically how bubbles are created, right? We, we don't look at the information. We look at the number of people who are following something and we assume that there is knowledge behind it, but it doesn't have to be. And, and if you think about it, a lot more financial reporting is, is not reporting about fundamentals. It's reporting about this price is, is increasing, um, you know, and, and they imply that this is a good idea, right? They imply, oh, everybody's doing it. Also, also in general, we, we have this instinct toward what is called social proof. We see what other people are doing and we think that's the right thing to do. <coughs> and, and sometimes it's a reasonable strategy. Um, but one of the easiest things to create in the lab is to create bubbles on the increase and on decrease. Uh, we are just herding animals. We, we look at what other people do. We assume that what other people are doing is the right thing. Like, think about AI. <clears throat> Sounds amazing. Um, a little scary, but amazing. A little scary, but amazing. Um, some of the images, some of the videos, some of the things, um, certainly occupying a lot of our mindset, a lot of the news, a lot of the media, we think about it, we worry about it and so on. So now that it's, it's very popular, news about it push things up and, and we follow the news and we say, you know, what are people talking about? Only AI, only this, more coverage, more coverage gets more interest, more coverage, and, and so on. So there's certainly a, a bubble of information and, and caring and interest and investing with it. By the way, the same thing go on the downside. When downside starts, people also report about it more. I mean, it has the same, the same kind of cycles. Um, now, you know, some... Some bubbles are justified. And AI, I think, is a real revolution. But, um, <clears throat> but the reality is that <clears throat> a model that just relies on the fact that other people are doing it and therefore it's a good idea is not the right model. We should try to, even to ourselves, create some kind of notion of what are the, what are the fundamentals that we care about and, and use that as a as a gauge of what's a good buy and what's too expensive. So basically don't follow the crowd, do your homework. <laughs> I would say follow the crowd 
to figure out what you should do homework about. But of course, you know, some of those things are self-fulfilling prophecies. If the crowd is coming and you buy at the right time, you're, and other people follow, you have a good chance to, uh, to get something. Um, but yes, I think long-term strategy, following the crowd is not the right approach. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you about housing a little bit and mortgages and the thinking, you know, right now, because interest rates are higher, the Fed's kept them higher, mortgage rates are higher, home buying is less. But now if we look to the past, mortgage rates at one point were 13, 14, 15%. So it looks like buying a house now is cheaper, but five, six years ago, interest rates were two and a half, three percent 3%. So behaviorally, how can we convince ourselves, okay, you know what? I, I need a house. I'd like a house. I can buy today and I don't have to wait because rates could go up, yeah. rates could go down. How do I find it within myself or behaviorally? How do I say, okay, you know what? I can be happy here. Yeah. So, so first of all, this goes back to the notion of relativity. Is 5% high or low? Depending if it went down from 13 and came up from two, right. you know, you're, you're, you're fine. There's a, there's a beautiful paper asking the question of uh, when people move to Pittsburgh, uh, do house, are houses expensive or not? Depending of where you moved from. If you move from New York, it looks really cheap. If you move from Texas, things look very expensive. And in this paper, um, they show that the people who move from expensive places, let's call them New York, buy houses that are too big. And the people who move from Texas buy houses that are too small. Now, if they rent for a year, they adjust. But if they just come fresh, they still remember the numbers. So somebody that's their current house is on a 3% interest rate. And they're thinking about upgrading to 5%. That feels to them like daytime robbery. Not because it's daytime robbery, but because they have a mortgage on 3% and it's very hard to, to do that. Um, so, so we are relative creatures. This relativity has a real impact. So now the question is, how do we get over this relativity? And the right approach is to compare it to another option. <clears throat> so I'm not comparing 5% now to 3% it used to be. First of all, why would you want to compare it to something that doesn't exist anymore? But you want to compare it to another option, which is to renting. <clears throat> so the question is not, now that interest rates are 5%, should I buy or not? The question is, how good is decision to buy compared to rent right now? Mortgages have gone up, rent has gone up. How do I calculate it? And then when we think about housing, there's another component, which is the joy of living in that place. Um, you know, yes, housing is a financial investment. But it's also a quality of life investment, unlike stocks. You know, stocks, if I own stock A or stock B, it doesn't change the quality of my life. A house does. Yeah. And, 
and and I think that people should should look at houses as a mix, as a mixed purchase. Saying yes, I want the value of this house to go up, but I also want to wake up and feel joy of living. Um, so imagine you're a family, and every year you spend ten thousand dollars on a vacation. Could it be that you would be better off spending five thousand on a vacation? And five thousand more on mortgage, because your joy of living in the house would be would be higher. So so the the but but when it comes to housing, I think often people think too much about the investments and not about the not enough about the quality of life. But but it's a mix. It's a mix, and we should think about it as a mix. So there's a there's an opportunity cost behavioral opportunity cost to buying that house or doing something else with that money. That's right. And, and you know, in, in these days, um, many of us spend more time at home. Uh, some, some work from home. <clears throat> um, our spouses work from home. Our kids uh, spend more time at home. So, so this, this question is becoming even more so uh, a question of quality of life. One last question, Dan. Do you see any behavioral issues due to the economy that you've you've noticed that uh, have popped up? Um, I think a lot. You know, as as we said, we have these tools that are not fit for this modern life. Um, so, for example, we see that when we move from cash to checks to debit cards, to credit cards, to touchless systems, uh, people end up spending more money. You know, as, as you move to things that have less attention and memory, uh, people don't remember how much they spend and they um, think they haven't spent anything. <clears throat> so lots of things in that, in that regard. And um, we see a lot of waste, especially food waste. Uh, we see dramatic changes in um, the ways people take uh, get food delivered um, since since COVID, a, a habit that we acquired that is both not very health, healthy and and a bit <coughs> and a bit expensive. But if you ask me, what do I think are kind of interesting trends uh, moving forward? Uh, I'll describe two that I, I think are interesting. One is usually our financial system is designed for individuals. Yes, you can have a joint checking account, but it's really a one-person checking account with another person joining. And there's a couple of interesting efforts out there to say, uh, how can we get people to start thinking together about their money? Um, you know, basically, we, we have two questions. We have... Uh, how much do we spend now versus spend later, what we call savings? And on what do we uh, spend now? Do we buy a new car or do we buy uh, phones? And, and there are cases in which making decisions together as a family or as a couple is, is better. So can we design a financial system where people together would make better decisions than they make separate? Uh, plus, can we get people to fight less? <laughs> about about money, you know, and and people fight a lot, a lot about money. 
The, the other thing that, that I'm personally involved with and I, uh, because of that I'm a, I'm a big fan of is in the last seven years, we have tracked how companies treat their employees and how the employees feel about the company. And we looked at the resulting stock market return as a consequence of that. And it turns out that there are things that companies do that doesn't change much stock market performance. For example, health benefits don't change much. Retirement benefits don't change much. Salaries don't change much. Furniture doesn't change much. But there are some things that companies do that has a real impact on stock market return. For example, do employees feel appreciated? Do they have a good relationship with their direct boss? Do they feel aligned with the company? Do they feel psychological safety that they can say what's on their mind? Uh, do they feel that bureaucracy is low? Um, and, and we call this human capital. And, and what we've shown is that companies that have high human capital uh, do perform, do perform better. And, you know, in an ideal world, uh, I want companies to start quantifying human capital. It's, it's kind of funny when you think about it, but a company who buys a warehouse, it's an investment. A company that invests in its people, it's a cost. Um, I, want, I want companies to start being able to invest in their uh, employees and, and think of it as a capital expense. Uh, maybe amortize it over a few, um, a few years. Um, and and, and that, that I think is quite interesting because, you know, th there, are, there are a few cases out there where it's a win-win. And I think finding out which companies treat their employees well, investing in them is kind of a win-win. Uh, it's better to invest in those companies and these companies deserve our money and it's good for the employees, it's good for the management, it's good for the, for the shareholders. So, so for me, this, this notion of thinking deeply about companies, when you say, oh, company X or Y, uh, are they going to do better or worse? Should I invest in those companies? I think to the extent that we get deeper into those companies, and we start reasoning about why. You know, why do I think that company X would do better than Y? One of those things I think will have to be human capital. If you ask the question of what's driving any company forward, it's the people. I mean, nobody would say, oh, if I'll treat people worse and they'll like me less and care less about the company, we'll, we'll do better. No, of course. Of course, it's the people. So I, I'm hoping that, that human capital is going to be kind of one of those important waves uh, and, and not just a wave that companies are managing it, but we as people who invest demand that companies take human capital more, more serious. We should look at those companies that are, that are investing in human capital, as you say, and make it a habit because you talked about habits, people spending habits and stuff like that. Yeah. Companies have to make it a habit to treat their employees better. That's right. That's right. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I, I really, really appreciate you being here today and spending time with me. I know that, uh, you know, I know you're overseas and, and dealing with stuff there. Where can people find you on social media? I have found you on Twitter and I love your Twitter. I think you put some great stuff out there. Where can people find you on social media? So the best place to find me is just on my website, danarielli.com, D-A-N-A-R-I-E-L-Y.com. And then I'm on all the standard social, social medias. Uh, these, as you said, are complex times, um, but, you know, complex times uh, call to all of us to think differently about what it is that we're doing. Uh, where is stress coming from? Where is resilience coming from? What are we not doing well? What should we, uh, what should we modify? So, so hopefully we'll... These, these tough times will also hopefully come up with some good, uh, good residue of uh, reflecting better about where we are and hopefully making better decisions. Absolutely. Your most recent book is Misbelief, and you have a blog too. Where can we read your blog? Also on my website, uh, there's a blog, um, and there's also a, a podcast with only eight episodes, but there's a podcast with eight episodes on resilience where I... Um, you know, I, I myself was badly injured. Uh, this right. is why I, my scars. I, um, um, so I went and spent the day with people with different injuries and tried to understand where they drew their resilience and success from. So it's also on the website. Excellent. Well, that's a wrap on another discussion here on Wealthion. Thank you for joining us and joining me with Dan. If you need help being financially resilient, please head over to Wealthion.com. Sign up for a free no-obligation consultation from one of our vetted registered investment advisors. And remember to follow us on social media for the latest news and information to help you invest wisely. Thanks for watching. And until next time, stay informed, stay empowered, and may your investments flourish.